Amen. Please remain standing for just a few moments. Thank you, Dorcas, for that offering of music, offering your heart to the Lord in praise. Last week, we jumped into the first five of these Latin phrases, principles that came out of the Protestant Reformation. We started with sola scriptura. God's Word is, well, it's God's Word. It's authoritative. It is sufficient for a life of faith. It's one of the reasons why we're standing at this very moment. Uh, as we consider the, the great power of the Word of God, working by the Holy Spirit. Where does that Word take us? Where does it lead us as His people? And uh, the more we read, the more we spend time in the Word, we find, just as the Reformers did, that it takes us to a person, to one person, the God-man Jesus Christ. And Christ is, is the, the center, the hub of where all these doctrines of the Bible revolve around. Um, we have no gospel, we have no church apart from Christ. Uh, so we're going to read two passages again this morning. I think these capture the essence of Solus Christus, though I'll mention a few more as we go along. First comes from John 14. Jesus offers a word of assurance and comfort to his disciples. And Thomas says, Lord, how can we know where you're going? How can we know the way? And Jesus responds in verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Again, the Apostle Paul speaking to Timothy, his first letter gives the rationale for the saving grace of God. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. We have that testimony given to us in God's Word. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank You for Your Word, for the way in which You speak to us now uh, that we might understand. Lord, we can't understand apart from Your Holy Spirit. Help us. Um, open our hearts, open our ears, open our minds that we might not only be attentive, but, but work in this truth. Lord, You must do this for us. And so we look to you as you proclaim your word to us now. Guide us, we ask, in Christ's name. Amen. You know, I've been thinking a little bit about fire this last week. How could you not be thinking about fire? The week started out when I hear of Jim and Janet were running from fire. Every time you'd open a web browser, there'd be a picture of, of the fires in California and all the devastation that they're causing but you know, in the last few weeks, you look at this and you sort of add it to the list of painful issues and destruction and, and problems that, that we face. You know, I think I'm, I'm grateful to be living in central Arkansas right now. Because you go a few hours south and you're running from hurricanes. You go out west and you're running from fires. If you're in the mountains, you're, there's snow and there's a lot of it already up there. Um, and Heath reminded me that we still get tornadoes with some frequency in this area, so I'll, I'll keep on lookout for that. But add it to the list of concerns and problems that we face. You know, North North Korea enjoys talking about making war with the world. We're waiting for somebody to just snap. There aren't two politicians who agree. Citizens are shooting other citizens. College campuses from hotel windows, we're slaughtering the unborn, we're ignoring the aged, 
We've discarded God's intention for covenant marriage, and now we decide what sex we want to be and when. What is the problem? What is going on? Ask yourself that question. Ask your, well, ask everybody. Ask your neighbors that question. What is the real problem here of all of these issues? What is the major problem? And I have to spoil it for you or the sermon would be over already. The big problem really is looking back at us in the mirror. The big problem is us. It is the sinfulness of humanity, the sin that is in us that remains. You know, the reformers understood this. They understood the implications of this. And oh, by the way, they suffered from the same major problem. Reading how, how Luther, when he wasn't spewing out things at the Pope, was depressed most of the time. Calvin had a temper that made him a very unpleasant person to be around. The John Calvin. Ordinary guys that God used in an extraordinary way, but they had the same issue of indwelling sin. The 18th century theologian preacher Jonathan Edwards, he said, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. That's our contribution. So can anything be done about this? Can anything be done? For the big problem, the problem that is in us, the only answer is outside of us. God's grace alone, by Christ alone, through faith alone. We've mentioned that Christ is, is at the center. It all revolves around Him. C.S. Lewis said, I can see the sun, but through the sun I see everything else. That's true for us. We must look to Christ and through Christ to see the answer. So solus Christus, remember the two questions we're asking of each of these principles? What does it mean? And then does it still matter today? Christ alone is our Savior. Christ alone is our mediator. He is the only answer. If you ever stop to think about some of the familiar symbols, actually things you don't think about when you see them. You're driving along the highway and you see those big yellow arches. What does it mean? Ron knows it's coffee right up ahead. We know exactly what those yellow arches mean. Or you see that, that little white apple with a bite out of it. You, you know what that's in reference to. Or a stick figure, a white stick figure on that half circle with a blue background. You know you're not going to park in that place unless you've got a corresponding symbol. We recognize these things just as we recognize the symbol that's right behind me on the wall. We see the cross... And we immediately think of Jesus. We associate it with Christianity, and for good reason. Martin Luther said that at the heart of Christian teaching, at the very heart of the Christian life itself, was a theology of the cross. Right at the center of the struggle for the Reformation. We must understand the cross. What has happened at the cross? Why did it have to be Jesus on the cross? If we're going to understand the cross, we have to understand just how serious the problem is. How serious our sin is against a holy God. We really think that our sin is so serious that God had to do something about it in order to restore us, in order to grant us peace and favor in His presence once again. 
You say, well, yeah, that's what God does. You know, I, I can get around to forgiving. Sometimes it takes a little longer, but I'll get there. And, and God forgives. Of course he's going to forgive me. He's like the forgiveness fairy. That's what he does. But do we grasp that our sin, even that the smallest transgression against the law of God, is an infinite offense to his character? In our sin, we cannot please God. In our sin, we have no desire to please God. To serve Him as we've been made to serve. We will find our own way. And this is where I want us to hear the verses we've read from John 14. And Jesus has told His disciples He's going to prepare a place for them with the Father. To spend forever with Him where there will be no more separation. And that's what really hurts, isn't it? It's the separation. Think of, trace back to the, your times of deepest pain, your deepest hurt, and very likely there was separation from one that you love, from something that you love, or a threat of separation. Jesus says to them, you know the way. To which Thomas, Thomas says, no, Lord, we don't know the way. How can we know the way? Maybe you hear in his response, we want to know the way. We want to make a way. We want to find a way. Just tell us the way. We'll do it. You hear some of that, that self-righteousness kind of resonates with our hearts. There's an important truth coming to the surface here. We cannot please God in our sin, but we must make this wrong right again. A just and righteous wrath against our sin must be removed. It must be appeased. And so the only way to do that is, is perfection, perfect obedience, a perfect sacrifice. Well, in Adam's original sin, that possibility is long gone. He lost his way. Consequently, we've lost our way. So we need another Adam. We need one who, who will show us the way. And so Jesus says in verse 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. The way to make this right. The way to an eternity of no separation with God. God Himself has come as a man to restore us to a right relationship with the Father. We see God the Father and enjoy Him through Jesus. We don't find a way. We can't make a way. We must believe in the One who is the way. In John's first letter, chapter 2, he writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you that, that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. God's wrath against our sin must be turned aside. That's what propitiation does. And that's not a word we're typically using around the breakfast table. But this, but this means our sins are atoned for. God's wrath is satisfied. The only acceptable payment has been made. We have a beautiful picture of this in the Old Testament. The continual practice of offering an earthly sacrifice just looks forward, prefigures that, that final offering of Christ in the heavenly place. Leviticus 16, it describes the sacrifice of atonement. It's fascinating. The, the, the Greek word, the word that's used to translate mercy seat is propitiation. The high priest would, would enter into this most holy place and sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice 
on the mercy seat. So that was the top of the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubim. So when the Lord would, would look on, on the cherubim, He would no longer see the law of Moses that it contained and how that law has been broken over and over and over again. He would see the blood of an innocent sacrifice. The punishment of, for sin has been dispensed on that sacrifice. Now His love is, is extended to all those who believe in what that sacrifice represents. That's propitiation. This is what Jesus has done on the cross. He's the only perfect sacrifice, only substitute for our biggest problem. And Paul would later write that Jesus, the sinless one, came to be sin. He became a curse for us that we might be seen of God the Father just wrapped, robed in His righteousness. The perfection of the second Adam cross makes it possible for God to forgive, to forgive and not compromise His justice at the same time. Thinking about fire this last week, I heard a story of of Paul, not the Apostle Paul, different Paul. He was duck hunting on a a trip in Georgia, and Paul and his friend were out in this field. They could see smoke in the distance, didn't think much of it until the wind started to pick up, and then they heard the crackling of the fire, decided it was time to move, And so they started moving and realized very quickly that they could not outrun this fire. And so Paul and his friends stop, and his friend is digging through his pockets. He's like, what are you doing? And he finally found this little book of matches, and he starts frantically lighting matches and trying to light the fire all around them, or light the the grass, that is, until they were standing in this sort of burnt-out circle, just in time so they could pull the hoods over their heads and duck down, cover their mouths, and the fire came right over them. But then a few minutes later, they stood up completely unharmed. Fire will not burn what has already been burned. You and I cannot escape the fire, which is the just consequence for our sin. The sin of every man, woman, and child. The wrath of God for eternity in a very real place called hell is the only thing we've earned. The only thing we're entitled to in our sin. But through the cross of Christ, we stand in that burned out place. Not a hair of our head is singed. He has lived in perfect obedience for us. He has been burned as the perfect sacrifice for us. Peter says in Acts chapter 4, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus is the name. Jesus is the way. As the God-man, Jesus, He has life in Himself. He gives that life to all who believe in Him. He's our Savior, which means He's also our mediator. Think of what in the world is a mediator. You know, I was thinking about this. I thought, well, when I get into a fight at school, that happened to other people, right? It wasn't just me. You get into a fight with someone at, on the school playground, and the teacher comes, or one of those older kids comes, and right, you know, they step in between the fists and say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! You know, what's going on here? There's different. There's a better way." Um, that person, that teacher, is, is the mediator, that go-between, the one who speaks for both parties. 
try to seek some resolution. And Paul tells, uh, tells us in 1 Timothy 2 that there's only one mediator between God and man. Only through Him, through His perfect life, His perfect sacrifice, can we approach the Father. And the resurrected Jesus continues to make this intercession for us. He is our forever high priest. He's given Himself as the sacrifice. Entered into that most holy place that you and I can now call the covenant Lord Father. We can go right into His presence. Right into the arms of our Father through Jesus. And all the examples of mediation in the Old Testament, think of Moses and Samuel and Elijah, all the prophets, they look forward, they look ahead to Jesus. Now we have direct access. We don't need any other mediators. We don't need any other saints or or angels or Mary or some other clergyman to intercede and pray for us. The benefits of Christ's death must also be mediated by Him for us. Jesus is everything. Everything to us. This is the heart of the Gospel. Recent polls tell us over 80% of evangelicals. So here again, I'm throwing some numbers at you and sometimes our eyes just go, okay, here's another poll. Um, I get that. The reason I do this every now and then is it it should stir within us a sense of of urgency. Um, Urgency for the message. Um, There's also a shock factor that goes with this. 80% of evangelicals believe that human beings are basically good by nature and that the gospel is essentially about God helping us help ourselves. Eight out of ten church-going folk. Church, that should wake us up. The Bible curses that message. If the life and death of Jesus is not sufficient, if we think we can improve, or that someone else can, can improve upon our status before God, then we have no gospel. The Apostle says that as much in Galatians 1, only a lot hotter than I can say it right now. The life and death of Jesus is sufficient to secure eternal life for all whom the Father has given to Him. Jesus must be our all in all. Think of the late 4th uh, century missionary St. Patrick to Ireland, he's recorded as offering this prayer. Christ with me, Christ before me. Christ behind me, Christ in me. Christ beneath me, Christ above me. Christ on my right, Christ on my left. Christ where I lie, Christ where I sit. Christ where I rise. Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me. Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks to me. Christ in every eye that sees me. Christ in every ear that hears me. Jesus is our everything, our Savior, our mediator. It's our desire that He would be everything, solus Christus, uh, to all that we know. Okay, so does this matter? Um, I hope we see that there's nothing that matters more than the saving work of Christ alone. I think in just a month and a half from now, a month and a half, we're going to enter into another Advent season. Celebrating the incarnation, the coming of Christ as a little child in the manger. I love the Christmas season, as I know a lot of you do. We look forward to this. The anticipation, the praise, all that, all that comes with it. It's a great time uh, in the church calendar. But the incarnation, in all of its importance, 
is not the centerpiece of the Christian faith. The centerpiece is, is represented here by this symbol. Jesus came for a very specific purpose. There's no reason to celebrate Christmas at all unless Jesus came to live and to die for our salvation. And that's important for us to remember even as well, that season will be here before we can blink and high. Um, James Montgomery Boyce, he hammers this point home. He says, to focus on the birth of Jesus apart from the cross leads to false sentimentality and a neglect of the horror and magnitude of our sin. The priority must be Christ alone. This is the gospel that the church must preach if they're a true church. This is the gospel our children must hear. Ask your children that question. Why do they need Jesus? Well, He loves me. Yeah. How, how do you know that He loves you? In fact, that's a great question to ask anyone, especially those who, are, who already claim the name of Christ. Say that they, they follow Christ as a Christian. Remember that poll I mentioned? Eight out of ten. So there's a lot of folks walking around with crosses around their necks and their ears, on their bodies, painted all over their cars, and all it is is a status, social symbol. Ask them, hey, you know, it's nice to connect with a brother or sister, so why do you need Jesus? Well, He's always with me, and He's provided in all these different circumstances. He's always been there. Could never have made it through such and such without Him. You hear these answers all going around the real reason we need Jesus. I'm a sinner and in desperate need of God's grace. And without the life and death of Jesus, I am eternally lost. Jesus is my only hope now and forever. Now we're starting to get to the gospel. We can sideline this, the saving work of Christ in lots of different ways. And we, we can be all about community outreach and the necessity of uh, social justice, working for social justice. These are all good things, godly things. We can be passionate about those things. But where does the proclamation of sin, the big problem, enter into that? Saving work of Christ, solus Christus, must be magnified. This principle should also lead us to a, a posture of humility, penitence. Uh, the more aware, the more conscious we are of our sin, the closer to God we will move. And just, just acknowledging our sin, confessing is such an important part of, of our walk with the Lord. The time we spend, like we have this morning, in, in corporate confession, private confession during our worship, it's critical. Only as we see the depths of our sin can we see the height of God's grace, the magnitude of His love for us in Christ. We see just how important, just how big the cross is in bridging the gap between a righteous God and an unrighteous me. Confession moves us to thanksgiving. It moves us to praise. That is always the trajectory of confession in the Bible, in the finished work of Christ. His intercession for us. You know, sometimes you'll hear the phrase, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Uh, maybe you've used that. I've used that on occasion. Um, and that's a true statement. When, 
when, when the gospel, when the whole big picture is understood. But to say that to a non-Christian, I don't think is particularly helpful in the long run. We sin because we are sinners. The sin cannot be separated from the sinner. When standing before God, he's not going to say, okay, you're okay, you over here, it's your sin I want to worry about. No, they go together. He's going to bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing in the life of every person, me, you, all the living and the dead. So I think in using that language, we tend to minimize, that's not the right word, we tend to soften an understanding the impact of sin. We must be gracious, must be tactful in our uh, discussions, but it is in no way loving the unbeliever that we're getting to know, hopefully, by ignoring the 2,000-pound gorilla of sin in the room. One more thought on why this principle matters uh, so much. Solus Christus, its implications, really shapes our perspective on so many things in the Christian life. With Christ as our only mediator, the only way, then all believers, every, everyone fills that priestly role. We all stand on the the same ground, level ground at the foot of the cross. The sacrifice of of our very lives. We're sacrificing all of us now our very lives to God. Which means it starts to break down then the the sacred and the the secular that the medieval church focused on so much. So no longer is there there higher or lower callings. Every, Every believer, every vocation is accountable to God. Offer Him praise and glory in the exercise of that call, whatever it may be, in Christ alone. It shapes our perspective on sin, the shame that we carry. We carry a lot of shame in the church. A lot of shame. We believe Christ has died for us. And he's offered that perfect sacrifice. But we carry all this shame because we don't really believe that, or we forget, that Christ lived for us. Perfect obedience for us. I can't, I can't believe I did this again. I can't believe I went here again. I can't believe I looked at that again. And we say, well, when we see the gospel, we see the, the wickedness of our sin. We say, well, yes, I did look at that again. I did go there again. I did say that again. But Jesus hasn't. He responded perfectly. He resisted that temptation in the way that I should have. But my life is hidden with Him. When the Father looks at me again, He sees the obedience of Jesus. He doesn't, doesn't reject you. He doesn't hold us, hold us off with a frown. Christ with you, behind you, before you, in you. Dr. D.A. Carson, he's a Reformed theologian, he's written a gazillion books. Everyone is... Worth the money you'd spend on it, I'm sure. He paints a picture here. It really it helps with perspective. Seeing the reality, the power of Christ alone. We really see Jesus and His blood as the only ground of our acceptance before God. So he talks about two different days. You know, One day you wake up, you stub your toe on your way to the bathroom. There's nothing in the house for breakfast. Your car doesn't start. You get to work. The boss is mad. You have to stay late. You get home. There's no good supper. Kids are misbehaving, you go to bed. And so you pray like this. God, this has been a rotten day. 
I'm ashamed of myself and I really don't have anything to say. Forgive my sin, bless everybody in the world, your will be done, in Jesus' name, amen. And then a few days later, the sun is shining, the birds are chirping, you get up, there's, there's whatever your favorite breakfast is, the car starts right up, you get to work, the boss is happy to see you, hey, why don't you take the afternoon off? And you get home and the kids are all smiles, they're, they're, they're all happy to, to be together, you've got one of your favorite suppers, you get a little quiet time in, and you go to bed and you lay your head down, eternal and matchless God. We bless you that in your infinite mercies and grace, you have poured favor upon us. And you pray for every missionary and all their children and all their cousins and once removed. And then you meditate on all the names of Christ in the Scriptures. You think about the Bible and before you know it, you just sort of drift off uh, to sleep. So which response is the best? And D.A. Carson says, on which of these occasions have we fallen into the trap of paganism? And the answer is in both of them. Both occasions. On the worst days and on the best days, we fail to understand that we overcome only in solus Christus. So that's, that's a perspective we must keep in mind. We must stay close to the cross. This is how he ends. He says, we overcome our consciences. We overcome our bad tempers. We overcome our defeats. We overcome our lusts. We overcome our fears. We overcome our pettiness on the basis of the blood of the Lamb. The death of Jesus was complete. It is finished, he cries. Totally sufficient. Never to be repeated, never to be supplemented. And so much of the work of the Reformation was right there. They rejected the Mass as a sacrificial offering. They rejected the purgatory and the idea of a treasury of merit and indulgences. All those things attempted to add to the finished work of Christ as Savior and Mediator. Calvin puts to words the sufficiency so well. As we see that our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. In short, since rich store of every kind of good abounds in Him, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. You know, when we see the big problem, when we see the greatness of our sin and what God has done through Jesus, it will overwhelm us with gratitude. We must give thanks. We'll want to serve. We'll want to, to give Him our all. Washed by the blood, crucified and raised with Christ. I mean, we can truly sing then from the heart. We're the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray together. Father, we do praise You for Christ, our life, the only way, the only truth. Lord, You have given us Christ. Grow our love, grow our affection for our Savior. Thank you for this time in your word. Work it deep into our hearts, we pray, that we might respond with gratitude, offering you our very lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.